Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your fall curmudgeon and A People's Theology host, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Caitlin Curtis. Caitlin is a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, as well as a Christian, public speaker, and poet. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Hudson Freeman. Hudson is a singer-songwriter from Springfield, Missouri. You can get connected with both Caitlin and Hudson and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Meniga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have Caitlin Curtis, and Caitlin Curtis is not only everybody's Enneagram favorite Enneagram Four person <laughs> in the world, uh, but Caitlin is a writer and a speaker uh, and just overall wonderful person. Uh, and you are a part of the Potawatomi tribe. Is that correct? Is it Potawatomi? I feel like I, I'm saying it so slow that I probably, it's a, no, a, it's a mouthful of a word. It's great. It's a hard one. It's a hard one. It's a great. So, uh, you know, there's lots of things that make you up in the world, but who is Caitlin Curtis to Caitlin Curtis? Uh, well, it's very sweet that you, you said I was everyone's favorite for. Um, I still remember correct. that from the last time we chatted. <laughs> um. Oh gosh. Well, it's always funny when you get asked those questions because we, we so much define ourselves by how other people define us, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I was just thinking recently about the different circles that I, um, work in, you know, like I do speaking events and I'm an author and I was thinking about how in a lot of the, the circles that I exist in, um, I still think of myself as kind of like everyone's little sister. <laughs> I think it's because I'm the baby of my family. Mm-hmm. And so I think about, you know, like other speakers, like uh, doing like the Evolving Faith Conference and Why Christian and some of these events where I've gotten to know all these people and they've become my friends that in my mind, I imagine that that I'm just like hanging out with my older siblings. <laughs> I think it's because I have started this journey so young. You know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm 31 and... I've published two books. So it just, I think, cause I am young. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like I'm, you know, just the little sister who's finding her voice. Um, I love it. So, yeah. I, um, you know, this is a weird season just because of COVID and everything. I think right now I am a more weary version of myself. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the fires died down just a little bit, but it's still, it's still there, but I'm a little tired. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm a mom and uh, I'm a partner and a dog owner. Um, I'm someone who someone asked recently, what are your safe places? And I think my safe spaces often lately 
even more so than usual have been just like going to a river or getting outside mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, trying to find, just find rest with the earth again mm -hmm. and again. What did you learn about yourself while writing Native? Oh, that's a great question. Native was really hard to write. Um, mm -hmm. I, I realized when it came out that it was kind of like my coming of age without realizing it. It's kind of like me telling my story of how I'm growing up, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, because it was just kind of organically born out of, I talk about how my first book was sort of beginning to deconstruct my childhood upbringing, my Baptist upbringing. And then native just like the next step of that, you know, mm -hmm. just going to the next, the next part of that. And starting to sort of then look deeper into things like colonization and mm -hmm. and to my playing the part that I've played in colonization and in toxic Christianity, you know, so it's like stepping even deeper into deconstruction, into decolonizing the work mm -hmm. of that. Um, mm -hmm. Native was just sort of born from that. And so I learned a lot about myself as I wrote it. Um, it was really... Um, a very raw journey, you know? Mm -hmm. So then when it came out, it was very scary mm -hmm. because I was releasing this sort of unfolding of myself. I was doing that as I'm writing it. And then I'm like, here, here world, <laughs> now you can read my unfolding, you know? Um, but that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing to be able to, it's a gift to be able to give that to people. Mm -hmm. And from what I've heard so far, I think it's helped other people in their sort of unfolding to mm -hmm. ask hard questions and know who they are. Mm -hmm. So I'm really honored to be part of that. For sure. I love that. One of the things that really struck me as I was reading it is you, you really have done an incredible amount of research for this book. So what was something maybe you learned about indigenous peoples or maybe about your own particular indigenous um, ancestry um, as you wrote this book? Yeah, I mean, even looking into the Trail of Death, which is, um, for those who haven't read Native, the Trail of Death was a forced removal of a group of Potawatomi people from Indiana into Kansas. And mm -hmm. I didn't grow up hearing that story. I didn't know, you know, until mm -hmm. a few years ago that that was part of our tribe's journey. Like why we are even in Oklahoma is because of the trail of death. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, learning about some of those things and then learning about them um, more deeply for the book because I wanted to be able to share it. And I'm definitely not a historian. I'm not, I'm not someone who does deep dive research. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to go too deep in the book because I wanted because people will stop listening at some point unless it is a book that's for history. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to give people enough to understand and then to keep moving with it, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, learning about my own tribe's history has been um, really powerful. And also just, I tried to read a lot of different books by other indigenous authors and I mm -hmm. brought in as many as I could mm -hmm. because I wanted everyone who reads native to to have a list to keep going. I don't want to, I do not want to be the only native author that people read. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. please God, no. Mm -hmm. I want people to keep reading. Mm -hmm. That's great. One of the things that I, I like uh, that you mentioned at the beginning is you kind of talked about some of the safe places for yourself right now. And you, you talked about like going to the river and, and those kind of things. Um, and you actually begin the book by talking about the concept of place. And I thought that was just like an incredible way to introduce, to begin your book. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about how the concept of place is understood within both indigenous and Christian spiritualities? Because I think there is some level of place being a, a core part of both of those spiritualities. Yeah, I think that has um, been a place in me where there has been overlap, where I've been able to connect mm. some of those things. Um, because a lot of 
a lot of parts of kind of Western Christianity and indigenous realities don't always go together. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, kind of coming back to my, my story. So embodying place in my story and then these physical places of existing and embodying, you know, I like the first line of the book is indigenous bodies are bodies that remember. Mm. And I wanted to tie that to a sense of place, you know, um, to start with that line. Um, yeah, it's been really a really um, sacred journey for me. You know, we live on the land of the Muscogee Creek and Cherokee peoples. So um, and we're moving soon. So even saying goodbye to this land, to this land that we have been a guest here for about six years in Atlanta um, is a really powerful and moving time in my life, you know? Um, so knowing that I wrote this book, living in this space and what sacredness and mystery have meant here and then moving on from it is, has been really powerful and continues to be really powerful. Um, I think a lot of, about um, like uh, Celtic Christianity and sort of Druid ideas of belonging mm -hmm. in place as well. Um, I'm drawn to, you know, uh, writers like John Philip Newell and, I have been for a long time and it's very interesting to see um, some of those connections to my indigenous uh, spirituality and his spirituality, people like that, where there are these, um, there is an older, um, what do I want to call it, kind of an older tethering of Christianity than what we have adopted here in the United States that mm -hmm. is very connected to place. So mm -hmm. can we like reach further back to understand why that's important in Christianity. And I think it takes a lot of work for us to do that because growing up Baptist, I never, mm -hmm. there was nothing about a sense of place, you know, mm -hmm. it was just like saved or not saved. Mm -hmm. That was it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's extremely disembodied in, in some versions of yeah. Christianity. Um, and furthermore, like, I, I think what's interesting is um, as I have journeyed in my seminary studies, what I've found is that while much of the Christian tradition, especially the Western uh, theological tradition, really has disembodied a lot of yeah. theology and spirituality um, and therefore has disconnected it from land and place, a lot of the mystics, even throughout history and even today, a lot of mystics have a really deep sense of land and place. Um, and a, a month or so ago, I was talking with Jeff Chu, as you know, Jeff. Um, and, yeah. and Jeff was uh, talking about the work that he did at the farminary, right? And yeah. the way in which that Jeff um, re-understood this like theology of land and place yeah. by actually working with land. Uh, really reshaped how he even thought about theology. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's just really interesting how by embodying your your spirituality and theology into something like land and place really mm -hmm. actually completely changes it um, com in comparison to a, a theology and a spirituality that's completely disembodied and only um, is able to be accessed within one's mind. So, yeah. And yeah. I think because of COVID, one thing that has come out of it is so many people are returning to land or they're going out and picking flowers from their yard and bringing mm -hmm. them in. And they're, I don't know, I think there has been this reconnection uh, just as humans, even, even whether it's spiritual or not, like just recognizing that we need the earth and we need to be able to engage with the earth and have a relationship with the earth that maybe we had been taking for granted. I've heard a lot of people talking about how much they need a river or they need just to step outside, even if they're not going on a walk, but just to like know that it's there. And I think that we're connecting to 
a longing that's been there for a long time, but we've not been listening, you know? Later on in the book, you talk about the paradoxes of your own identities. Um, and so you talk about being a Christian, but also being of a people who were colonized by Christianity. Um, and so one of the things I find really interesting about Christian theology in particular is the way that Christian theology really tries to uphold different paradoxes. So something like Jesus being fully human and fully divine and that God is fully transcendent and fully imminent and that kind of thing. So can you talk a little bit about how maybe like Christian theology or whatever sort of theological tradition you find yourself a part of has been able to allow you to have those paradoxes um, and not feel like you have to uh, win one over the other or something? Yeah. Well, you know, really, even since I wrote Native, I have recognized where I can't hold that. Like we, you know, as a family, we aren't going to church right now because we went to a church where we realized more and more at this particular church, it cannot hold all of that. And so mm -hmm. I knew I was entering that place and not all of me could exist there. It just, mm -hmm. it couldn't. And so um, it was eventually a decision that we had to make to leave that space. and. Mm -hmm. What it did was force me to look kind of throughout my life, online spaces even, mm -hmm. to find where can I exist as all that I am. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes Twitter is one of those places because um, it's a, I have a really diverse following. Twitter's not the best place to hold nuance, but, um, but we all have these layering identities and these spaces that we're inhabiting. And you can tell that that is true for a lot of people. Um, and then just, you know, core groups of friends that I have that I know I can share sort of these liminal spaces with them and mm -hmm. that I can do that in safety. Um, institutionally though, it is hard. It's hard to find, um, places that are, that allow us to hold that. Cause I think institutions just, they want to draw lines and they want to set, set the parameters and the boxes and the labels, you know? And mm -hmm. if you're someone who doesn't fit labels very well, like even right now I've just landed with, I'm, I'm on the periphery of Christianity is what mm -hmm. I'm telling people right now, mm -hmm. because I, I don't know, I don't know. And I don't always feel comfortable with the word Christian and what we've created with it. And yet I do feel a pull to the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. not the white one I grew up with, but the actual one. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I believe in the solidarity that comes with, you know, engaging with that love and that, um, fight for a better world. And so, um, but yeah, it's hard. So I feel like, um, I feel like it changes throughout our lives and we have to just, uh, find those spots where we can exist as all that we are. And sometimes it's, sometimes it is an institution. And sometimes it's not, you know, mm -hmm. um, so right now it's not so much in the institutions, but it's in sort of the, I don't know, sort of organic gatherings and connections mm -hmm. that are made where I feel like I can't exist and hold all of that. And a lot of it's with like 
the people who are reading my book and mm. emailing me to tell me, I read your book and these are my, these are my liminal spaces. This is where my identities overlap. And this is how your book helped me in that. And that like, that means the world to me because I know that they're asking these hard questions too, and they don't know where they fit. And there's so many of us that don't really, we can use labels all we want, but they don't always fit. Mm -hmm. With recent protests about police brutality around not only just the country, but even around the world, Mm -hmm. anti-racism work has really been in the limelight I think still to this day like the 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 best New York Times sellers right now or a lot of like anti-racist work Um, and so but what is often forgotten in in this discussion is indigenous people and how they are often disproportionately brutalized and killed by white supremacy and by police so what are ways in which white people can resist white supremacy specifically um, as white supremacy uh, affects uh, and kills and brutalizes indigenous people. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been, I could not have known that, that my book would have been released into a COVID world. Mm-hmm. And I, I found that like the things I wrote about in native, like we know police brutality, violence, racism, oppression, these are not new things. And so mm-hmm. I already wrote about them in native, but I've been amazed at how some of the like um, paragraphs I wrote fit our time right now. You know, mm-hmm. I write about protests. I write about police brutality and it's just kind of wild because I couldn't have known, you know, what was happening. And I feel like um, my words have met me here in this time again and met others. And I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, there's just a lot. There's a, you know, we're seeing monuments come down. We're seeing statues come down mm-hmm. and that's so meaningful. Um, and and liberating, but we also need to know why they're supposed to come down. I think, Mm -hmm. I think that, um, white people and other allies can get caught up in the movement and the moment without realizing like the work that's still ahead. Like if you don't understand that indigenous people are still here or like why we're valuable or why black lives matter, like why they matter and that Mm -hmm. they should matter. And that then, then, um, the work's eventually going to just stop you know, mm-hmm. and then we'll just have, then we'll just have some new status quo that isn't actually changing things, you know, mm-hmm. it'll just become a new one. And, um, and I just want people to dedicate themselves to this work for the long haul. Like it's going to take our whole lives. It's going to take a long time for this change to happen. So understanding why indigenous peoples, like how our nation got here, why mm-hmm. we've been oppressed. Mm-hmm. why genocide happened. You know, there's just so much history that we need to learn that we've been ignoring. And, um, you know, and I, I share pieces of it in my book, but since I'm a writer, I'm always pointing people to books. So <laughs> I hope people keep buying books and not just mm-hmm. buying them, but actually reading them, you know, mm-hmm. that they don't just sit on the shelf, but that they're read and, and read again. And, you know, and that you give it to your neighbor and let them read it. Um, yeah. I just, I hope it's change that is sustainable, that keeps going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my own experience, especially in terms of Lakota people here in Minnesota, um, yeah, I, I think there, yeah, there was this sort of sense of like I I really should care about the the Lakota people who who live here, um, and it really wasn't until I actually listened to the stories and the history of the Lakota people and what actually happened by white people. Uh, the violence that happened from white people to Lakota people on this land, the land that I was literally standing on, 
um, that it really gave a new sense of like, because that history was something that was now known by me, that there was a new renewed sense where I'm like, I can't un ever unsee this. And my heart will always be shaped politically and theologically and spiritually by what I have just heard and what I've learned. Um, and so I think you're totally onto something that like the history actually really deeply sits within us um, yes. in ways that will always uh, give us the fuel to continue to do this work. Um, and so, yeah, I think there is something really um, extraordinarily important by the history of all of this. I'll keep what's drained in Uh, later on in the book, you talk about power and how power distorts the soul. Um, and so I'm really curious, um, you know, obviously as like a person whose ancestors and still to this day, um, who whose people are brutalized by white supremacy and by people, white people who have power, um, like how do you understand omnipotence or like how do you understand maybe in like other words how do you understand god or whatever term you might be uh, interested in using how do you understand god's power um given the history of the way that power has been violent to um to your people and to even uh your your ancestors today um someone recently was describing the new testament as this like or the people of the new testament and what came later in christianity as this movement to you know place christ as a benevolent dictator and i was like mm, i don't you know i don't know if that sits well with me to call someone a benevolent dictator you know because um obviously we you know um many cultures around the world like we believe in this um higher power or higher powers that are very powerful you know because we're seeing things happen around us we're experiencing things we're thinking about um things that happen throughout history the problem is that for example things like colonization you had a group of men come here and say you know, by the power of God, we can take over this land because you're not Christian enough. You people mm -hmm. are not Christian enough. And so by God's power, we can do whatever we want. And that's the doctrine of discovery. And that mm -hmm. is the foundation of this country as we know it, you know, so it has just mm -hmm. continued to maybe recreate or, you know, bear its new tentacles of whatever that might be patriarchy or, um, enslaving African peoples. Like it just continued this threat of white supremacy from things like the doctrine of discovery. So it becomes dangerous when we um, use God or mystery or whatever, when we use their power to control others and to oppress. And that's how history has just repeated itself throughout the centuries. So how can we, oh, how can we sit with the power of mystery without like wanting wanting to use it for our own sort of greedy purposes mm -hmm. and i don't know i think that's what decolonizing is inviting us to do is to ask if we can be aware of 
I don't know, the sort of strength and glory of mystery without wanting to use it to our advantage or I don't know. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the beginning of the book, uh, like I mentioned, you talk about the concept of place. Um, and then at the end of the book, you start talking a lot about body and the importance of body um, in indigenous spirituality um, and indigenous history. Um, how has your understanding of your own body as a Potawatomi woman been liberating for you? Yeah. So I write about um, specifically the purity movement, which many of us mm -hmm. went through in our teen days, um, I was kind of dating goodbye. All of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. courting. I remember, remember, courting. I remember <laughs> sitting in my living room reading that book and how much I was like, yes, this is how it should be. Um, I loved that book and it shaped me. I mean, and, and there was just like no other way. It was like, I was all in, this is the way it's, it's supposed to be. And that is a, that is using power in a bad way, you mm -hmm. know, to shape Anyway, um, it forced me to, what followed that season was me um, being completely disembodied, right? Because mm -hmm. everything about body is bad and shameful. And yeah, so kind of becoming an adult and um, finding not just my, not just finding embodiment, but indigenous embodiment, which is like you were saying, it's tied to the land for me. So mm -hmm indigenous women i am an anishinaabe kwe so i'm i'm an anishinaabe woman so my body is connected to the land it's connected to the water and so my feminism or um my um way of existing in the world is directly connected to the thriving of the earth you know and so when you reimagine it in that way it changes everything i mean it has to and it makes you it makes you into a being who has to live relationally. So like my, the way that I care for my body is directly tied to this kinship to the earth and to the other creatures of the earth and everyone around me. And I think that that births solidarity, like that creates solidarity with other people. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So yeah, a lot has changed um, since I was, mm -hmm. you know, 18, 19, very conservative. Mm -hmm. um, purity movement goer, um, a lot has changed, but I, I see a lot of people coming out of that and sort of asking what's next and how do we liberate ourselves? Mm -hmm. The relationship between body and land, like you mentioned, really reminds me or really sort of reframes my understanding of uh, the, the oil pipeline that is going through North Dakota and the fight to prevent that. Um, and the reason for that is because this land would be violated by such a pipeline. But not only is it the land that's being violated, but because there is such an integral relationship between body and land, that actually is affecting not only on a physical level, the bodies of the people who live there, especially the indigenous people who live there, but also it affects how they even understand their own bodies, how their spirituality and their body gets affected by something like the violation of land. Um, and so, yeah, I think it really just hones in and highlights the fact that the relationship between body and land um, is not disconnected whatsoever. Um, mm -hmm. and so when one is affected, the other actually gets affected. Um, yeah. And, so, and when yeah. we say like, water is life, that's not like, we really mean it. Like yeah. water, not is, just a catchphrase. It's life. Like it, it is, um, it's 
our good medicine. It's our lifeblood. And so if you're going to contaminate it and sell it and create it into a product, like you are, you're hurting it and you're hurting the people who care for it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but that's a really hard thing to get across to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anyone in America. <laughs> Today I have Hudson Freeman, and Hudson is the artist that you've been hearing throughout this episode. Uh, Hudson, you're really good at what you do. Um, I, I'm really curious, you know, in the midst of quarantine and everything, uh, you have like that one single has recently come out and everything. Can you talk a little bit more about what it's been like to be an independent artist uh, throughout this uh, these last several months? Well, obviously it's been kind of frustrating because um, I think for most um, most musicians are in this place where they're basically just trying to figure out how to have any income mm -hmm. whatsoever. Because <laughs> um, essentially there's not really um, any access people have to doing shows right. right now. And that's kind of really the only genuine income that artists kind of get. So um, I've basically just kind of taken time off of it and more put it towards writing and recording stuff mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to um, trying to figure out something or make things work for sure for yeah. sure I, I mean i've talked to a number of musicians and yeah it, it, for them i mean they're really the only thing that they can do at this point is just write and record and so you're i mean i've actually we're actually seeing quite a few really good yeah. albums come out this year yeah uh yeah. but it's i think a lot of it is just because there's really nothing else to do so yeah. uh you yeah. might as well just start writing and recording and you know if right. you make some money out of it great yeah. but if not and, like you really have like, nothing else to do yeah i, I mean as like I tend to be somewhat of like a kind of purist in though, like wanting art to just be like, you just make it and then it's out. And then that's like your only relationship with it. Mm -hmm. And it's basically like forcing people to have that relationship with it, or it's forcing artists to have that relationship with it where mm -hmm. they're just, it's just make music and release it. And then you can't do anything else mm -hmm. with it. And I, some, in some ways that's like a more pure, kind of art form i think for sure i mean yeah. i know that you released a live album a year or two ago um can you talk a little bit about what you really miss from live shows yeah um i actually released that about um three or four months ago oh sorry so, yeah so i that's totally like, misread that the weird the weird thing about that is literally we did the live show and then a week later oh my nationwide quarantine went into place so <laughs> It was like, I think it was um, March 12th that we did the show. Oh, wow. Yeah. So literally, uh, we did it at the university I go to, um, or I went to in Springfield, Missouri, Evangel. Um, and it, we went on spring break that next week, everything shut down. And wow. so that, that was like, it was not just that that was like one of the last shows before everything shut down. That was literally the last live show I did was this like. <laughs> this big concert thing I did. So to a certain extent, I feel like um, just lucky that I got to do it. But um, yeah, I literally, we had the show and then I spent quarantine mixing and mm -hmm. record and like actually working on the production of the show. So for sure. One of the things I noticed as I was perusing your Spotify is there are a number of other verified artists from Springfield that you're associated yeah. with. 
Yeah. Talk about the music scene in Springfield. This, this yeah. is shocking me that really there's bizarre. this many verified yeah, yeah. artists that are kind of in the same genre of music. Yeah. Even. Yeah. It's really bizarre. It's really bizarre. Um, I obviously I think you you mentioned that, you know, Ellie Schmidley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Ellie being one of them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, she's insanely talented, by the way. Um, for those listeners who haven't listened to her, you should. Yeah, I forget what episode she's on, but she's in one of my episodes yeah, from a year or two. She ago. is so good. Um, I've I've had her on a couple of things and a few songs of mine. Um, good friend as well. But yeah, I don't know what what it is, but for some reason, probably because it's like a college town, um, and there's various people who are like kind of just interested in arts and mm -hmm. interested in uh just college music in general they we've just kind of developed like a little weird midwest music community here and it's pretty it's pretty interesting and uh fun to be a part of obviously there's there's no money in it because uh <laughs> we uh, aren't in the near the coasts and we right. there's like not a lot of opportunity but it's this fun little artistic venture for sure that's awesome that's really yeah. cool so uh you know let's go back a little bit to some of the quarantine stuff um you know you're, you like you mentioned, there's really nothing else to do but uh, write and record. Do you have any idea of what you're hoping to do? I mean, knowing that the the future is is completely indefinite with COVID right. stuff, so you don't know when you're going to be able to go out, maybe do a little mini tour or do some other yeah. shows. So is there are there any other plans out in the future, maybe some new music or maybe yeah. some other projects? Yeah, so a really big influence of mine is... Um, uh, Adrian Linker and Big Thief. I oh, yeah, of course. I, that's like a really huge influence for me. And um, her kind of methodology in making music is is mostly just, um, it's kind of similar to the way like Sufjan Stevens was right. in like the late 2000s, where it's just like make a ton of music and just write a ton of music and release it all. And like, don't really think about it too much. Just kind of like keep writing and keep mm -hmm. making it. And I've kind of, I don't know that I, I'm, I'm that, um, I don't know that I'm that capable of doing what they do, but I, I have just kind of taken on the thought of just like, I'm going to write a bunch of stuff and release it and not really worry about promotion of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people are in that position right now. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a interesting one to be in it's putting, sure. making a lot of music, um, that I don't think people would have had the courage to do otherwise. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, Hudson, thank you again for sharing your music. I've really appreciated it. I mean, again, I, I think you're just insanely talented along with all of those musicians from Springfield. So uh, thanks yeah. for sharing it. And uh, hopefully you can get some of this new music out soon and uh, we can enjoy even more. Yeah. Awesome. We talked a little bit about decolonization, um, and it seems like there has been, at least within the last several years, there have been more and more conversations about decolonization. It seems to be something that people are a little bit more, at least with the sort of Christian world that we're in, people seem yeah. to be more aware of. Um, 
And and so because of that, unfortunately, because there's more conversation, it it can certainly potentially become whitewashed, um, and it becomes sort of this like Instagram post, or it becomes memeable, or it just becomes a buzzword. So what are yeah. ways that white people can really place decolonization at the center stage of the way that they think about things um, and do that work of decolonization, but without sanitizing it into some buzzword or some Instagram right. post? I mean, so even for me, like, you know, I'm using decolonization as sort of an invitation into a way of being where there is an academic term of mm-hmm. decolonizing, which is like leaving a call, you know, you're you're literally breaking away from an entity from a colony. Mm -hmm. So even for me, like I'm aware that I'm using it. I'm trying to use it to connect to people who read my book, who may not be academic or aren't imagining how we can do that. Um, But yes, what will happen and what's, what happens all the time is that whiteness becomes the center of it. Mm -hmm. All the, you know, with so many of these things, uh, especially with, you know, um, terms or ways of being that are, created or shared by black indigenous other people of color it becomes centered in whiteness and then that is just that's white supremacy happening all over again mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. to decolonize um is the way that i'm framing it is an invitation to look at the ways we have been complicit in colonization even personally in our own lives like i write about a native about growing up going on missions trips to mexico and mm the way that I was taught to view other people as sort of a product, you know, are you Mm -hmm. saved or not saved? How can I get you saved? Um, Even though I loved the people I was around, you're taught to view them as this thing instead, if that makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is colonization. So how can I decolonize? How can I examine those systems and speak out against them? Um, And that's really hard because whiteness systems of whiteness want to hold on for dear life to -hmm. those things like missions isn't going to go anywhere anytime soon it's Mm -hmm. going to keep going and within the church and so we have to ask um how we can do this work and in a way like i'm grateful if if it becomes not popular but known so that people understand what it is but you're Mm -hmm. right it will get sort of um, watered down to where it doesn't hold meaning like you can't just be like i'm decolonizing and not do anything so Mm -hmm. if you're really about the work of diversifying the books you read and and centering the voices that haven't been centered like that is the work of decolonizing you know Mm -hmm. if you're willing to stand up to your families about why mascots are racist or you know mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. why you're protesting why black lives matter why disabled lives matter like those things we have to look closely at the systems we participate in and ask how we can if we're not dismantling the actual system at least can we dismantle its power in our lives and to do that you can't hold on to whiteness at the same time because it's all it's at the root of what colonization is so we have to dismantle that and you're whiteness has to be dismantled along the way if it's real work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that. Uh, The tagline for my podcast is exploring, inspiring, and liberating theological work. Um, And yeah, I'm just curious, how do you see Native being inspiring and liberating theological work? Mm, That's a good question. Um, It was hard when when I pitched the book and as I started writing it, the question when you are going to write a book is always what's your audience. And, um, it was hard because it's like, 
I know that probably the majority of my audience will be white Christians, maybe pastors, maybe, you know, progressive white pastors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and I knew that that would be a lot of the audience, but then I was like, but I hope that, you know, black indigenous people of color read it. And I also hope that disabled people read it and see themselves in it. I hope that mm-hmm. queer and trans people can read it and see themselves in it. And it was like, I was trying to write a book that was telling my story and talking about indigenous peoples. I hope indigenous people read it, whether they're Christians or not. Like, I hope they can read it. And mm-hmm. that's really hard to like <laughs> try to write a book that, that has a broad audience. Um, and I've just been really surprised and grateful at the different types of people who have read it and have mm-hmm. gotten something out of it. I've heard from white people who have read it, who have said, I'm re-examining these systems. I'm trying to decolonize, you know? Um, and like I said earlier, like, uh, people who live in these liminal spaces, mixed people who read it, queer people, trans people who are saying, like, I saw part of myself in it, but also thank you for telling your story. And I think that, um, I think we underestimate the power of story. And I, you know, I don't call myself a theologian, but others might. And so, um, (laughs) um, it's interesting because we tie, like we tie theologian to seminary, you know, I haven't Mm -hmm. gone to seminary. I'm not a biblical scholar, but I do write on these ideas of God, right? I write Mm -hmm. on who or what God might be and ask lots of questions. And I wanted to write a book that would leave people with more questions really, because I feel like that allows us to just keep going. I didn't want to just write a book full of answers. You know, I wanted to write a book that got people thinking and maybe that's what theology is about. So I hope that it did its job. Last question, Caitlin, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Uh, So you can find me at my website, caitlincurtis.com. But I'm also on Twitter and Instagram a lot. Um, And both of those tags are at Caitlin Curtis. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your work. Um, I I think your voice is exponentially important right now in our world. And I I think just the way that you write, in fact, I was telling um, a friend yesterday about this, but the way that you write is able to hold so many things together. Uh, And I really appreciate that about, uh, especially in Native, but just even in your Instagram posts, in your tweets, uh, you're able to hold so many things together at once. And I think that takes a lot of strength and vulnerability and courage, and you're able to do all of those things. Um, And so in addition to all of that, Native was one of my favorite books I've read this year, and I've absolutely enjoyed it. So thank you for sharing your voice, and thank you for uh, exploring a little bit more uh, in this podcast. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with both Caitlin and Hudson and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. And every bone in 
Oh, well, oh, well, oh, well.